Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. We've got a real treat for you today on our 39th episode. We're speaking with Tina Wolf, author of Exacting Justice, and afterwards I'll be reading our fantastic short story by one of our very own Canadian crime writers, Joan O'Callaghan. Runaway was a runner-up in 2014 for the Boney Pete Short Story Award and was featured in our Carrick anthology, World Enough and Crime. Our review this week will feature A Noise Downstairs, the latest crime novel by Canadian crime writer Linwood Barclay. Hey, I don't only feature Canadians, as our listeners know, but it's that kind of a day. I thoroughly enjoyed the audible edition of this novel and will give my full review before today's author interview. Next week, I'll be speaking with true crime author Nate Henley about his new book, The Boy on the Bicycle, A Forgotten Case of Wrongful Conviction. As you know, I reviewed this book on our August 25th podcast. The story profiles Ron Moffat, who was wrongly convicted of murder in 1956. My review next week will be On Writing by Stephen King thought by many in our industry to be the definitive work on fiction writing. The news this week has unfortunately been interesting, much like a Chinese curse. The war of public opinion raged throughout most of the weekend into the weekend over the allegations of sexual assault levied against U.S. Supreme Court nominee Judge Brett Kavanaugh by Christy Blasey Ford. As an aside, look for a terrific article by Stephen Petro in the September 21st Washington Post titled, Her Name is Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Use it. Petro looks at the deliberate ways in which high-profile and credible accusers are diminished in status by a calculated refusal to call them by name, thereby stripping them of their humanity in the public arena. I will call Dr. Blasey Ford by both her title and her name. I've been on her side of the table. I know what those chairs are like on your ass. I wasn't at that high school party on that day 36 years ago, and neither were you, dear listener, unless your name is Dr. Blasey Ford, Judge Kavanaugh, or Mr. Mark Judge. I won't pretend to know who is telling the truth, and neither should you. What I can tell you, in case you aren't aware, is that the statistics on sexual assault allegations fall squarely into the accuser's favor. All of North American claims of sexual assault, only between 2 and 10 percent are generally agreed to be unfounded, and of that inflated number, many may be true but are deemed to come with insufficient evidence to allow for a successful charge and conviction. Many Western experts place the unfounded stat at a clean 5.5% average, meaning that in the cool light of mathematics, 94.5% of all sexual assault allegations are capable of being substantiated. Does this prove that Dr. Blasey Ford is telling the truth? No, of course not, but it should give us a clear indication that her claims are worth investigating. The Supreme Court is the highest judicial calling in the U.S., and many would argue in the world. It should be comprised of men and women whose integrity is beyond reproach, 
whose love of honesty and justice prevail over any personal desires or goals. Can this be true of a man if he is indeed guilty of attempted rape? Perhaps, you might argue, he was only a teen when it occurred. Perhaps he should be forgiven this transgression, as horrific as many survivors might find it to be. You could be right. Certainly I've forgiven people in my lifetime, and I hope many people have forgiven me my transgressions. But consider this. When Senator Al Franken was accused of sexual misconduct, ridiculing and debasing a fellow traveler, Leanne Tweeden, he apologized and took responsibility. We all understand that times change and that comedians misbehave, but that doesn't make his conduct all right, and it doesn't offer him a pass. However, and this is a big one, I assure you, for survivors of sexual assault and misconduct, he did apologize. He did step down from his office in shame. He had the courtesy to offer a direct apology to Ms. Tweeden and to those that he let down. He took full responsibility. If Judge Kavanaugh at some point is shown to be guilty as alleged, that would mean that A. He has been blatantly lying under oath. B. His past behavior opens him up to possible compromise. And C. The Senate will be showing itself once again as having little or no concern for the welfare of 52% of the Western population, namely women. For these reasons, a full and thorough investigation of this allegation is warranted. Not merely a set of questions designed by Senate committee of old men to harass and belittle Dr. Blasey Ford and asked on their behalf by whatever legal female they can hire to act as their tribute to obscure the fact that they are shaming and belittling yet one more woman, one more female with a story to tell, but a full and thorough investigation. And this brings me to something fellow, a fellow crime writer said to me last week on Thursday. She is someone who has been well-established in the Canadian crime scene for many years, and she knows as many crime writers as I do, or quite even more. And she assures me that the main reason so many women write crime genre is because deep down in our innermost souls, we are all searching for some latent sense of justice. And that brings me to my review of A Noise Downstairs by one of Canada's leading thriller writers, Mr. Linwood Barclay. In full disclosure, I listened to the audible edition of A Noise Downstairs. I found the story to be compelling and fast-paced, infused with Barclay's trademark wit. His plot is exceptionally well-articulated, his protagonist unfailingly likable, and his twists unexpected. Barclay leads us down the road with Paul Davis, his troubled protagonist who is the survivor of an attempted murder. The scars of Paul's experience leave him mentally unsettled, so as the story unfolds we're never sure how much of what we are told is the result of criminal activity and how much is Paul's hyperactive and stressful imagination. Somewhere between PTSD and the supernatural, lies the truth of what is keeping Paul awake at night, those unaccountable noises coming from the den downstairs. Who is responsible? You'll have to read the book to find out. 
For lovers of the thriller, especially crime novels that display humor and a healthy dash of understanding, you can't go wrong with any Linwood Barclay novel, and A Noise Downstairs is no exception. I highly recommend it for your fall to-be-read list, but please keep the lights on for this one. And now, in our continued quest for justice, I'm proud to bring you our interview with Tina Wolfe, author of Exacting Justice. Ms. Wolfe is a civil engineer who holds a bachelor's from Case Western Reserve University and a master's from Cleveland State University. She began her career in the transportation field, designing roadways and the water systems that support them. After working nights on her master's degree, she began working in the water and wastewater industry, specializing in Clean Water Act compliance. She has four published novels, two short stories, and more in the pipeline. Her stories are not police procedurals or legal thrillers. They are about the plot, the mystery, with a fun twist of humor that makes life entertaining. And that makes Tina Wolfe a great fit for today's episode, especially on the heels of our review of a Linwood Barclay novel. So now, let's give a huge Dead to Rights welcome to author Tina Wolfe. Good morning. Good morning, Tina. It's Donna Carrick. Welcome to Dead to Rights. Thank you, Donna. I really appreciate you having me. Now, where are you located? I'm in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Oh, excellent. What kind of weather are you getting? It is heavily raining, but the upside of it is I have a moat around my house, which I'm pretty sure makes me a princess. <laughs> I think you are. I've heard it said that you're a princess. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you today about, uh, primarily about your most recent book, which you've written as uh, T.G. Wolf, Exacting Justice, and it is brought out by Down and Out Press, um, and I believe its release date is going to be April 23rd, is that correct? That is correct. Yes, yes. So by the time our listeners are listening to this, the book will actually be available. Um, and I, I just went in and I had a little look about it. It looks like it's featuring a protagonist by the name of De La Cruz. Can you tell us a little bit about your protagonist? Jesus De La Cruz is a homicide detective for the city of Cleveland. And his background, um, he came up through narcotics. He was an undercover narcotics detective until a a bust went bad, and he ended up in the hospital for a long time, came out realizing that he'd become an alcoholic. Okay. So as we pick up the story, he is starting to rebuild his life. Okay. And what does rebuilding his life entail? Tell me, is he involved in a 12-step program? He is. He's a member of um, <clears throat> excuse me, Alcoholics Anonymous, he was injured badly enough that he ended up having to live with his sister for well over a year. So he's finally moving out of her house, has for the first time a home of his own, um, and he's learning how to balance the stress of work life with the demands of having a private life and without having the crutch of alcohol to turn back to when the day doesn't go exactly as planned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which I think is really a very common problem amongst real-life law enforcement. I've read this many times. Um, it, it's such a, a high-stress area of work that it's it's almost, 
really, really difficult to avoid the entrapment of addiction, isn't it? I think it is, and I think for all of us, stress has to have an outlet. And if you can't manage to find a constructive one, then you're going to find a destructive one. Whether you're taking it out on those closest to you, whether it's verbally or physically, whether you're taking it out on your body through alcohol or drug addiction, um, whether you've turned into an adrenaline junkie, you know, and you're, whether you're jumping out of airplanes or running into fires, mm-hmm. there's going to be an outlet for that stress. Yeah. And in this case, Cruz drowned his in a bottle of whiskey. Yeah, yeah, which is a very common problem. And I, I've said my whole life that there is and has to be more to life than waking, working, eating, and sleeping. And I think that touches exactly on what you're saying. When you can find those outlets, you can have a happy life, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so tell us what outlets he's now veering towards. As he's coming out of alcoholism, he's rediscovering friends, and he's learning that you can enjoy your friends without there being a drink in your hand. Um, About halfway through the book, he does go to a bar with a friend, and it's a really hard moment for him because he equates going into a bar with drinking. Mm -hmm. And he comes to accept that he can have a 7-Up, and he can throw darts, and he can be part of the dark dart league, not dark league. and that in itself is enough. Mm-hmm. Um, he meets a girl. It's the first time in eight years that he's actually had a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, both the pros and cons of everything that comes with having a significant other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in mm-hmm. some ways, it adds stress as much as it's a stress reliever. Um, yeah. So he starts to rebuild his life along more normal channels. And I, I use the word normal to mean being people-driven rather than thing-driven. Now, he has to segregate different aspects of his life, I would imagine, and that's not always the most healthy thing to do because he's working in an environment where he's he's um, in contact daily with drug dealers and people who are involved in the industry of addiction and at the same time constantly battling his own addiction because, as we know, a true addict is never cured and never deludes himself that he's cured. Oh, Donna, it's like you psychically read between the lines of the story. Mm -hmm. What Cruz attempts to do is to segregate it, is to say, this is my work life, work is work. This is my private life, work doesn't come here. Mm -hmm. And again, we know that that doesn't work. No. And it's his girlfriend who, at one point, she's like, are you kidding? She's like, our bed isn't big enough for the three of us some days. And he's like, no, <laughs> no, it doesn't come here. Uh-huh. That denial of the bleed over is itself one of his demons. Mm-hmm. Because he feels like he has to be that strong wall that stands in front of everybody, there's nothing standing in front of him. And and really, as the story progresses and our and our bad guy is seeing, air quote, success, it's at a cost to Cruz. Okay. And with, with the safety net eliminated because he's pushed it away, he leaves himself very, very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, it's often that very strong wall that we try to present to the world that leads to our frailty. 
Um, Mm -hmm. We're so busy trying to prove we can take care of our families, we can take care of our jobs, we can take care of our our friends and our public personas, even as artists. I mean, of course, we don't live with the stresses that a law enforcement agent does, but we live with our own types of stresses and our own need to, to present ourselves a certain way. And it can lead to an awful lot of frailty because we really are not that strong. We were not born to be that strong. Well, and you really touch on another theme of the story. One thing that I've been very sensitive to recently is with the movement of our of our world to a more Twitter-based, instant access, brief snippet information. We're losing the humanity in it mm-hmm. on both sides. One of the things that I tried to draw out through this book, with, with hopefully without being too obvious, is the depth of of detail behind the cops, behind the stone face that's standing on the podium. Mm -hmm. You know, what's really going through the head? Does the person even want to be there? Mm -hmm. And then equally, the depth of person behind the victims. Yes, some of them are just bad, Mm -hmm. but some of them are just stupid, and some of them are just, you know, making poor decisions. And what I do try to show is the support system behind, quote, the bad. So you still see mothers that are broken up because their children have died. Mm -hmm. You see sisters and friends who are broken up because we tend to, we may condemn the crime, but we still love the person. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are times when, in real life now I'm talking about, and I see this in art, and when it's portrayed, it always touches me. I find it to be one of the most poignant aspects of crime writing, really, is that there are times when a so-called bad party wishes to change, but the elements of their environment are really stacked against them. Um, Quite often, even their own mothers don't want them to change because it separates them in some way. Um, The people that are closest to them may outwardly say, you've got to change, but By their actions, they almost try to thwart that. And I know that this is true in the case of addiction. Someone like your protagonist now, uh, De La Cruz, trying to fight addiction. It's one of the the hardest things because your environment is geared towards thwarting you, isn't it? It really is. And to, to go all in to beat addiction does, I think, in most circumstances mean that you're walking away from everything else you know. Yes. Because you're... You're not hanging out in that place. You're trying to change the circumstances that may trigger the addictive behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the inspirations for this is uh, one of my brother-in-laws, who is a recovering alcoholic, and I can't thank him enough for just his openness to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things he talked about was how he's, quote, lost his friends and how they weren't really as interesting as he thought they were when he was drinking. <laughs> And yet they were his friends, good, bad, or ugly. They were his friends. And and we love our friends, and we love our habits, and we love our routines. And I, I know as a former smoker, this is where I get my knowledge of addiction. I was a long-time very heavy smoker from a long line of heavy smokers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I quit 20 years ago, best thing I ever did, but without a doubt the hardest. And my issues are with food. Mm-hmm. I love eating, and it's also the thing that I do when I'm stressed 
and when I'm sad and when I'm overwhelmed and when I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And there's almost no emotion I can have that doesn't make me want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm getting more like that now as the years are bridged between me and smoking. But I know exactly what you mean because those cigarettes, while they were killing me, they were my best friends. Um, no question mm-hmm. about it. You know, the comfort level. <laughs> And hopefully as people read this, even if they are, themselves are not struggling with alcoholism, that they'll find these types of things like we're finding. Do I know exactly what a recovering alcoholic goes through? No. But then I would also venture to guess that an experience, if you had five recovering alcoholics in the room, that they'd have five different experiences. Yeah, I would think so. And so, you know, you're drawing from smoking, you know, and I'm drawing from eating. I think there's just as many people who may be addicted to, to something physical like running mm-hmm. um, and to other things. And so there's a way to relate. If you just say, okay, maybe it's not alcohol for me, but I can see how, you know, there's this about me that even if I wanted to control, I would have a very hard time doing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's the way we view our world and our environment. Now, I've taken you way down this discussion about addiction. It wasn't my intention. I actually had some some other <laughs> questions related to your fiction. So <laughs> I'll take us uh, kicking and screaming back to that because this is a fascinating topic. Really, it is. And uh, the best protagonists are not perfect. I can't I can't abide cardboard cutout characters. I really don't. Um, But you've transitioned from being a romance writer to a thriller writer. You actually also write as Anita DeVito. And you've got titles like Lost, Lost in Shadows, Lost in Deception, Fish Out of Water. And as we're talking about your latest... I'm seeing that there are romantic elements in your thriller, and I know that there are mystery elements in your romance novels as well. Can you tell me about that crossover? When I began writing, I began writing purely for the fun of it. And there are two things that I enjoy more than anything. One is the mystery, the solving of the mystery, and the other is the dynamic of relationships. So when I first started writing, I wrote what I would describe as suspense with light romance. Now, my first contract was with Entangled Publishing, and so they took my suspense with light romance and turned it into romance with light suspense. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. That is what the genre is. I had an incredible amount of fun beefing up the romance. And actually, it's a great thing that my my romances are e-books because they are long. Because I give the reader a full mystery and a full romantic story. And I don't compromise on quantity or quality of either. And with ebooks, you can really do that. You can really dive in and be the writer you want to be. People don't recognize that. They say things like, oh, I only love a real book. And I challenge them. You know, get yourself an e-reader of some kind. I'm not here to do commercials for Kindle or for Nookbook mm-hmm. or for any of those, but get yourself some type of e-reader, something that's easy on your wrists, lightweight, and can hold a lot of material because you're going to find some writers that you would never find otherwise and some really terrific reading material. Yeah. And while I, would, I didn't understand it at the time what a gift it was because if I had come out more traditionally the suspense would have suffered. Because mm-hmm. it was a romance publisher, the romance would have survived intact, and it would have been the suspense that really would have been forced to be cut back. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. When I started writing Cruise, number one, I did want to write something that was more of a pure psychological thriller, but really, I never expected him to be published, and so I was still writing for me. And so I wanted to write a book where I could explore these themes of of modern-day communications and show the depth of these characters beyond the tweet. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to craft a killer that could be either gender, any race, could be within reason between like 18 and 65 years old. Mm-hmm. And so to do that, you really have to be so incredibly thoughtful because it takes the crime away from being a brute force crime mm-hmm. to being one of skill. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, and then even Cruz himself, he took forever to craft because you know how it is, you know, people think that writers have complete control over the story, but it's not that way. No. It's like Cruz didn't reveal himself to me for the longest time. It wasn't until I realized he was Puerto Rican. And once I realized he was Puerto Rican, everything fell into place. Oh, okay. And so here, in addition to all these other elements, I had a non-white male lead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the story just flowed, and I, I was very fortunate that Down and Out um, picked it up. And I'm so excited about about Cruz's story now and the ones that will come in the future, uh, because he is just he's an engaging character. Yes, he really does sound like it from everything you've said and from everything I've read in my research about the book. Um, I'm actually really looking forward to it coming out. I am a true lover of mystery and. Um, it's my, you know, I, I, I want to speak to authors from all walks of life. That's why I'm happy to speak to you about your romance history as well. But my one first love is always and will always be mystery, which brings me to my next question. Um, I captured that you're a lover of mystery as well. What were your mm-hmm. influences that brought you to that? Well, as I said, I love the mystery, the solving the problem, that that was, that's always been what entertains me. My first favorite mystery were the Columbo movies. Oh. <laughs> I can remember being like eight, ten, whatever, and uh, sitting with my dad and just watching these, and it's like, ooh, Columbo's going to get you. Oh. And it's so funny to think of those because you knew who did it. You can't be old enough. You can't be old enough. You sound so young. (laughs) I mean, my sister and I, we would stay up for Columbo. We had a bedtime curfew. And, you know, I suspect I'm quite a bit older than you. So we would watch them as soon as they came out. These were not reruns Mm -hmm. when we watched them. And if our parents were going to have guests on that particular night, they'd want us to go to bed a little earlier. And we would hide under the coffee table watching Columbo (laughs) on a Thursday night. And they knew better. They wouldn't even try to get us to go to bed if Columbo was on because we loved it so much. (laughs) Just one more thing, you know. (laughs) Just one more thing. It's like, oh, he's got you. He's got you. Yep, yep. That's it. You're done for now. (laughs) I know. I know. What? I became a reader. My first, my first book hero was Nero Wolf. Mm-hmm. My grandfather read him, and now as I look back, I recognize that Nero Wolf mysteries are clean. Like there's really very little violence. There's hardly no swearing, mm-hmm. and it, 
it was all about the mystery. And everything you needed to solve the mystery was in that book. Yeah. You know, everything Archie saw was there. And so you could, if you were a mystery lover, you could go right along with Archie to figure out who did it. And then when Nero would do his big reveal, it was like, ha or dang it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> I missed that. Yeah. Uh, and so... The way that those two things have informed me as a writer, number one is to say that there is a place for plot-driven mysteries. It doesn't have to be about the gore. It doesn't have to be about the biggest splash or the biggest shock. That there are a lot of us who love the challenge of the mystery and the fun of solving the crime. Yeah. Yeah, there are an awful lot, an awful lot of people, and it runs an entire rainbow of, of gradients. Um, how much thriller, how much suspense, how much actual crime, how much gritty real life, how much um, fade to black, you know? For those of mm -hmm. us who love mystery, it really, it's all about the justice, the figuring it out, you know, that's what it is. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's the satisfaction mm -hmm. at the end of the book. And it's interesting because you, you still don't want things to be totally predictable. No. And so you don't want to read every book where the bad guy is exactly caught and he's hauled off in handcuffs. Like, that's fine for some, but you also want, you want things to be mixed up. And sadly, it's part of reality that the bad guy doesn't always get caught or the lawyers are better than the prosecutors. Mm -hmm. And so even within solving the mystery, there can be satisfaction for the reader yeah. without necessarily it always going to the exact same place. Yeah. But and I think that, that, that I think that exceptional character development leads you to that because if your characters are not cardboard cutouts, their outcomes are not going to be cardboard outcomes. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's actually one of the differences between the mystery, thriller, and romance, is romance always ends in, in the same place, and that's with the happily ever after. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you can be in a romance, and much like our Columbo, you can thoroughly enjoy the ride, but you know at the end that that roller coaster car is going to come right back into the station. Yes, exactly. Where with thrillers and mysteries, the outcome is not so assumed. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. But even Perry Mason had one case that he could not win. <laughs> <laughs> now, your first book, if I if I did my research correctly, your first book, Lost, came out in 2015. Um, but I suspect you've been writing longer than that because I can just tell your depth of knowledge about about the art. Um, how long have you been writing? I began writing in about 2006. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of funny. This is not a normal way to start writing. So I, my day job, I'm an engineer. And um, I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and I had a project for a client down in northern Kentucky, which is no less than five hours away. After the first time or two, radio just didn't hold my attention. And so I started, I started plotting. I called it daydreaming, but I started plotting. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't really sleep well in hotels. And so just for fun, I started writing down those plots. Mm -hmm. And that became the thing that kept me more engaged and more awake as I would do these, you know, once every few week commutes between Cleveland and Northern Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And then it just became the thing that I enjoyed doing. 
um, my version of plotting is daydreaming, mm-hmm. and it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> but that's not, that's not as unusual as you think, though. I mean, I do hear this from writers that um, this is when their mind can disengage from family, friends, colleagues, because they're commuting. They're between here and there. They're in limbo, and their minds are right. actually free during that time-space sort of continuum between here and there, you know? And so we, we go back to that idea of stress management. Yeah. This is where I go to play when I want to get away from my day. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting now as it's turned into something tangible because, for and again, for as grateful as I am, I never aspired to be a writer. I aspire to enjoy myself. (laughs) Yes, yes. And when you do what you love, you do it well. Now, this leads me to, I wanted to talk to you because uh, you mentioned your your day job as an engineer. And you've actually, uh, tell me where you studied. I did my bachelor's degree at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And then I did my master's at Cleveland State University, uh, both in civil engineering with a specialization in hydraulics, so the movement of water. You've already answered my question about the lines of creativity that attach between fiction writing and engineering. Um, And I know this because I have a son who excelled in design and tech all through school. He was always a year ahead of his class, and he was always at the top of that class. And he ended up, he's studying musician, he's studying music at York. (laughs) So there's a very strong line. And he had um, wanted to be an architect. That was, um, and he was accepted into, he got an early acceptance into U of T architecture. I'm so proud of him. Sorry to brag. Um, And they sent him a beautiful letter saying, you know, you're one of our early acceptees. You've distinguished yourself throughout your school career and we'd love to have you. And he was so torn, and he was so anxious that summer trying to make his mind up. And every time he got anxious, he headed for his guitar or his piano. Mm-hmm. And finally, the answer presented itself without uh, our having to agonize too much because that was what he really wanted to do, clearly. you know. And so that's what he's I, doing I now. Totally relate. I have my, about my son's just entering high school. He's also a musician and he crosses over between the sciences and music. And really, they're one and the same. I they mean, are. music is all about math and numbers and sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself, just, uh, just before I turned, well, we won't talk about that, I started learning to play the guitar. And I found <laughs> that I can go to that same tranquil place. Yeah when I have a guitar in my hands as when I'm plotting a book. Whatever that part of the brain is, is actively engaged. And, yeah. and you know, there's something to be said for that saying that if you do what you love, you never have to work a day in your life. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's all about beauty. Engineering and design and architecture, they're all about beauty and function. Mm-hmm. And uh, the arts are certainly all about beauty and entertainment, which is a type of function, too, you know. Um, I mean, people need to be entertained. They do. That's a real human need. And uh, so there's function in that beauty as well, I think. There, I think there's a misunderstanding among people who aren't around engineers or scientifically oriented people that it's incredibly boring, it's incredibly mundane. It's like you can tell the engineers in the room, they're the ones in the corners looking at their shoes, trying not to make eye contact. Mm -hmm. But in reality, 
it takes an incredible amount of creativeness to solve problems. Mm -hmm. If the answer was as easy as the obvious, there would be no issue to be solved. And so you have to be able to take things apart and put them back together to create things that don't yet exist to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And when I watch my son write music, he does very much the same process. You know, he may start with a couple chords that are related to each other, mm-hmm. um, but then everything else about it, he's drawing in and creating. Yeah. And you know, so I think people get turned off as for as much as a push there is right now about STEM, whether it's women going into it or, or boys going into it. You know, they really push the mechanics of it and the art of it is lost. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if we go back, oh, what I can't remember now. But it was like in, in the Renaissance, where there was not a division between art and science. Yeah, yeah. You know, so many of the most famous scientists were the most beautiful artists. Yeah, yeah. Because they're expression of the same thing. Yeah. Well, I, I'm one of those believers, and I spoke recently with a, a gentleman in um, California who is a leadership consultant, and uh, his belief really mirrors mine very strongly in that I think everything we do, if we do it correctly, it is an art, uh, and it should be viewed mm-hmm. as an art, and we should enjoy it. And if if that is not the prevailing feeling, we really should stop doing it. And Absolutely. Choose something else to do that, that we can view as the art of life, because we're all headed in the same direction and with the same velocity, you know. <laughs> and there's something about our culture that doesn't necessarily value art, yeah. so I think that when you say to somebody, oh, my son opted to be a musician, an artist, people are like, oh, I'm sorry, Donna. That means he's going to be living with you for the rest of his life. That's right. Oh, I bet you he'll make a great teacher. (laughs) (laughs) He'll make a great teacher. You know, I don't think all cultures are like that. Yeah. Um, And even in communities across the United States where you see the arts valued, it shines through in the community itself. Yes. And it becomes these places that are treasured and whether they're treasured and become, you know, tourist attractions or everybody who wants to study wants to go there. Yeah. You know, on the surface, it's not, well, you're not a lawyer, you're not a doctor, you're not an accountant. Um, somehow in the translation of what it takes, or what the definition of, of, of making it is, yeah. artistry is lost in that. It sure is. And even here in Canada, um, it's the same type of thing. We have a, a couple of very dear friends, and they've got three children. Their youngest is the same age as our oldest, um, but it's only because we spread our children out. They're really, you know, the same generation as us. But um, their oldest daughter was one of those young women that art spilled out of every pore. You've met these people. Um, they're certainly not like me. I tend to the functional as well as the artsy Um But she was just pure art. Everything that she did, said, she loved to sing, she loved to paint, she loved to dance. And she basically was told, no, you're going into the sciences. Mm. They refused to allow her to go into the arts. And uh, I don't know how that all played out. She's married. I think she's living a nice life. She's got children. I'm sure she's working. Um, But that just seemed so sad to my husband and I because she really, it was undeniable in her, you know. Her siblings, no, they were more, you know, not quite as artistically full as she was, but um, she was just one of those people where it was undeniable, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. I think too many times, too, we as parents get caught up in the having. You know, yes. we want our children to be able to have a nice house and have a nice life. And somehow in that definition of having, you forget happy. Yeah. And not everybody needs the same thing to be happy. I mean, That's there right. are some people who living a, by comparison, small life. You know, I don't need a car. I can walk to where I want. I don't, I don't need to have this. Mm-hmm. It's the right thing for them. Yeah. And we should support them and, and, you know, hold them up and not make judgments for them. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Tina, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Don. I really enjoyed the conversation. Let it rot. I want to thank Tina Wolf for joining us today on the pod. And now, please stay with us as we bring you a compelling short story from World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing 2014, titled Runaway by Joan O'Callaghan. Editor's note. Tense and action-packed, this unputdownable thriller comes to you from award-winning author Joan O'Callaghan. Runner-up for the coveted Boney Peach Short Story Award, Bloody Words, 2014. Queen Station. Jed could hear the train. Bright lights bounced off the tunnel walls. He could see Finch in day-glow orange letters on the transom of the train. Someone jostled him. He spun round, fists clenched. Jostled meant pickpockets. But a young woman pushed past him. With an anguished cry, she threw herself onto the tracks in front of the speeding train. The shrieking and grinding of brakes blended with the horrified shouts of the crowd. Jed shuddered and turned away. He stumbled over something. The woman's handbag. He looked around, reached for it, hesitated, then scooped it up, and hugging it to his chest, pushed his way out of the station. He ran as fast as he could, dropping to a quick walk when he tired, until he got to his squat, a dirty brick building on Queen Street East, slated for demolition. He hunkered down on his ratty sleeping bag and spilled out the contents of the handbag. "'What you got?' Pitbull flopped beside him. Jed didn't know his friend's real name, and he didn't want to know it. Pitbull was short and solid, with a shaved head. Jed thought he looked like a human tank, one of those Transformer-type toys he played with when he was small. "'Stuff,' he said. Pitbull snorted. "'A purse?' What you doing with a goddamn purse? Found it. Maybe there's something in it. Like what? Pitbull had been good to Jed. When he was new to the streets, Pitbull had helped him out of a couple of tight spots. Jed owed him. Cash, he said. He counted the money in the wallet. $42.35. Enough for burgers. What's this? Pitbull held up a book with strange writing on its wine-colored cover. Looks like a passport. Jed grabbed it and leafed through the pages. Russian. There she was, the woman who had jumped. Her hair was different than in the photo, longer, but it was her. How can you tell? Jed waved it at Pitbull. Because it says right on it, Russian Federation. Then he felt bad. Pitbull couldn't read. Pitbull scratched his belly. Let's get those burgers. Then you can tell me how you really got the purse. Jed sighed. 
Pitbo might not be able to read, but there was no fooling him. A small rectangular object at the bottom of the handbag caught his eye. He turned it around, examining it. What's that? Lipstick? Pitbull stood. Jed shook his head. USB key for a computer. After we eat, let's go to the Internet Cafe on Young and see what's on it. Maybe, he thought, there was something valuable on the USB, something he could sell. He slipped the passport and the USB key into his pocket along with the cash. On the street, Pitbull stuffed the purse into a garbage bin. At Burger King, he chewed slowly, staring at Jed. Jed concentrated on his ginger ale. Pitbull opened a little package of vinegar and sprinkled it over his fries, watching and waiting. Jed pushed his drink to one side. You really want to know where I got the purse? Don't think too many people throw away a purse with a passport in it. Jed took a big bite of his double whopper and put it down. Then he told Pitbull everything. How he'd jumped the turnstile into the subway when the fare collector wasn't looking. About the woman who leapt in front of the train. That he'd taken the purse she'd dropped. Woman don't need it where she's gone, Pitbull said. What you gonna do with the passport? Keep it for now, Jed said. They made their way through the crowds on Young Street to the Internet Cafe. Jed paid the clerk and booted up the computer, then inserted the USB key into the port and waited for it to download. Lists appeared in Russian. What the fuck is that? Pitbull asked. Dunno. Telephone numbers, names, addresses, looks like. Pitbull tugged on his ear, a sign he was thinking. Names and addresses? Maybe you should take that passport and USB key to the Russian whatever you call it. Why? Might be a reward for turning it in. Not a bad idea, but they were sure to ask how he came to have the passport. Let me think about it, Jed said. He turned off the computer and pocketed the USB key. Beeb was waiting for them back at their squat, leaning against the wall near the door, an unlit spliff between his thumb and forefinger. He spat on the sidewalk. You had some visitors. He was called Beeb because he looked like Justin Bieber when he was cleaned up, which wasn't often. His greasy blonde hair hung around his face in strings. The faded Blue Jays t-shirt and jeans he wore were stained and torn. There were holes in his sneakers. Jed and Pitbull exchanged looks and hurried inside, Beeb following. No kidding, Pitbull said. Someone had taken a knife to Jed's sleeping bag and shredded it. Fuck, 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 who the hell did this? I'm going to kill them. Furious Jed kicked at the remnants of the sleeping bag. Gray stuffing spilled onto the floor. See anyone? Pitbull asked. Beeb shrugged. There's this black car with tinted windows in front here. Two dudes get out. They don't look friendly. They duck into your squat, then come out a few minutes later. I found your bag all torn up like this. What's up? Jed shook his head. Having a clue, he said. Maybe you should give them what they want, Beeb said, so they don't come back. I just told you, I don't know who they are and I don't know what they want. Beeb shrugged again and tucked the spliff into the pocket of his jeans. So he wouldn't have to share it with them, Jed thought, watching Beeb slink away. I don't like it, Pitbull said. You sure no one saw you lift that purse? Jed shook his head. No one. 
Someone saw. How else they know where to look? When Jed didn't answer, he continued, They know you've been staying here. They'll be back. Jed shoved the nest to one side with his foot. I'll sleep in the parquet for a while. That night, when he was sure he was alone, he picked up a rock and dug a shallow hole in a nearby flower bed. He wrapped the passport and the USB key in a plastic bag he'd found and buried them, placing the rock over the spot to mark it. Later, Pitbull showed up with coffee and stale donuts. Maybe you should dump that USB thing and the passport. I put it where no one will find it. Pitbull crumpled up the donut bag and tossed it into a nearby bin. I don't want to know, he said, standing up. See you in the morning. He brushed the crumbs off his jeans and took his coffee and left. Jed crawled under a bench, grateful it was a warm, dry night. His thoughts drifted back to the comfortable house where he'd lived before he hit the streets. He was asleep when the two men dragged him out from under the bench. One of them pinned his arms back and covered his mouth, while the second guy frisked him and turned his pockets inside out. They were big and dressed in black pants and hoodies. "'Where is it?' the one holding Jed growled, the Russian accent. "'I see you in subway station. You take purse when she jump. Where is it?' The frisker nodded to his partner, who pulled a small gun from the pocket of his hoodie. "'Give it to us,' he said. "'I don't have it,' Jed managed to say. His voice sounded like a squeak. The man jerked Jed, sticking the gun into the small of his back. "'We'll find out what you know.' They marched him to a black Lexus, pushed him into the trunk, slammed it shut, and drove off. Forcing himself to remain calm, he groped for something, anything he could use to free himself, but they'd removed the spare tire and jack. He felt for the taillights and connecting wires, but they'd been covered over with some kind of a panel. There was no emergency trunk latch. He was fucked. The car picked up speed. They were on a highway. Even if he did manage to get the trunk open, falling from a speeding car onto a highway in the middle of the night would be fatal. There was no escape. He huddled in his rolling position, wondering if he was going to die. No one would miss him. He remembered his home, near Bancroft, before his father died of cancer. His mother had remarried and they moved to Trenton. She must have been lonely, he thought, or she wouldn't have fallen for dickhead. His name was Dick, but Dickhead suited him better. He was in the armed forces, had done a couple of tours in Afghanistan. When he returned from his last tour, he was posted to the search and rescue center in Trenton. Dick worked with a research group that developed and tested clothing and equipment for the military. He took Jed camping in the bush and yelled at him if he didn't follow orders. Jed dreaded those trips. He just wanted to finish high school and figure out what to do with his life. He liked art. His teacher said he was good at it, and he should apply to the Ontario College of Art and Design. Then, six months ago, he'd talked back to Dick. In response, Dick slapped him hard across the face. His mother just stood there and watched. That's when Jed decided it was time to go. He hitched a ride to Toronto and disappeared into the streets. He was 15. The car was slowing and turning, probably onto a dirt road because it sent him bouncing against the sides of the trunk. How long had they been traveling? At least three hours, he guessed. 
He braced himself on the floor, hoping to avoid being tossed out. And then the car stopped. Jed tensed, terrified, wondering what would happen next. The trunk sprang open. Get out! Jed scrambled into the darkness. His cramped legs wouldn't support his weight and he dropped to the ground, tumbling against an exposed tree root. Using the tree for support, he picked himself up. He stood there, hands against the bark, until his legs felt strong enough to hold him. His eyes were used to the dark from being locked in the trunk for so long, and he was able to make out the silhouettes of the two Russians. One opened the back door of the car, removing grocery bags. Jed raised his head cautiously and sniffed the air. It was cooler here, with a bite to it. They must have come north. And something else, decaying vegetation. He knew that smell from those hated camping trips. Muskeg. The other Russian came around the tree and prodded Jed with the gun. Where you put her purse? I threw it away. You know throw purse away until you see what's inside. Maybe something valuable, eh? You kids live on streets. You do anything for money. Beeb, Jed thought. They must have paid Beeb to rat him out. He felt the gun in his ribs again. What you take from purse? The voice was guttural, threatening. Money, that's all. His mind raced. They wanted the passport and the USB keys. Those lists of names and addresses. The men exchanged a few words in Russian and Jed caught their names. Boris and Igor. Igor, he decided, was the man holding the gun. Reaching into the car, Boris withdrew a large flashlight and clicked it on, flooding the clearing with a bright light. An animal in the brush uttered a sharp cry. Startled, Boris stumbled and swung the flashlight upwards, momentarily blinding his companion. It was the break Jed needed. Throwing himself onto the ground to stay out of the light, he partly crawled, partly rolled into the dense bush behind the clearing. Moisture seeped through his jeans. The swamp had to be close by. He heard shots as Igor's gun fired wide. He sprang to his feet and ran, dodging in and out of the shadows to avoid the wide arc of Boris's flashlight. There was shouting behind him, punctuated by gunfire. The ground was soft, wetter, and the vegetation thicker. Now he could see moonlight reflected in a sheen of water. He didn't dare wade into the muskeg too dangerous. He couldn't see bottom. How much longer till first light? A large dead tree loomed in front of him. He crouched behind it, his chest heaving. He could still hear the Russians. He guessed they too wouldn't risk the muskeg in the dark. He glanced up, saw the Big Dipper twinkling in the night sky. A memory tugged at the edge of his mind. Think! Dickhead in the backyard pointing to the Big Dipper. Dickhead's thick finger waving, telling him the Big Dipper was like a 24-hour clock at night if you knew how to read it. Look for the two pointer stars at the end of the bowl, and Polaris, the North Star. As the Earth turns, the pointer stars change their orientation to the North Star, and you can get a rough idea of the time. About 3 a.m. now. Still a few hours till daybreak. Then he could risk the muskeg. Shivering, he settled against the trunk to wait. The blackness of the night faded to gray. 
Pale pink streaks washed the sky. Time to get moving. The Russians, gritting his teeth against the cold, he waded to the water's edge. He hesitated, then decided to keep his running shoes on. Leeches, fish, water snakes, he shuddered. He arced his body forward in a shallow dive. Frigid water closed over his head. Eyes open, Jed could see the bottom. Mud and weeds. Dickhead's gravelly voice in his head. Don't touch bottom, the mud'll suck you down. Float on the surface. Look for a corduroy road. It'll support your weight. He raised his head above the water and gasped for air. He could hear them now. Low, guttural murmurs. Careful not to make a splash that would give him away, he dived again and propelled himself forward. Lungs burning, he surfaced and gulped air. A vibration and a thrum of a motor. The Russians had a boat. Closer now. The motor and the voices were louder. He had to move. A large blue heron snatched a fish out of the swamp just yards away. Startled, he dropped below the surface with a splash. A shot rang out and a bullet ricocheted off the water a few feet ahead of him. Desperate now, he kicked and headed toward a thick clump of weeds and deadheads. A motorboat couldn't go in there without fouling the propeller. Silence. They had cut the motor. He raised his head a few inches and listened. Gentle, rhythmic plops. Paddles. Jed turned his head to gauge their position. Mistake. The boat was closer than he thought. Igor stood and gestured toward the weeds with one hand, waving the gun with his other. Boris gave the craft a powerful shove with his paddle. It surged forward. Igor lost his balance and, with a hoarse cry, fell overboard. He surfaced, spluttering and shouting in Russian. Sheltered behind the weeds, Jed pulled himself into the crotch of a thick dead tree and watched, horrified. The water was up to the man's waist. He struggled against the suction, trying to lift his feet, but the movement only worsened his predicament. Boris stuck out his hand. Panic-stricken, Igor grabbed it and pulled. The boat rocked violently, threatening to throw Boris overboard. He wrenched his hand free, fighting to keep his balance. Igor fell backwards. As Jed watched, he sank quickly beneath the water, his face twisted into a mask that would haunt Jed for years. Boris waited for a moment, then fired up the boat's motor and turned in the direction from which they'd come. Jed slowly scanned the landscape. There it was, barely visible, a channel through the dense vegetation. He took a deep breath and dived again, going as deeply as he dared without hitting the muck. The channel was too narrow for a boat. His shoulders touched the banks on either side as he pushed himself along. Boris might not know where he was, but Jed didn't know where the Russian was either, and he didn't think Boris would give up that easily. He would come up another wider channel and fire at him. Jed dived again, staying underwater, coming up for air only when he felt his lungs bursting. Exhausted, he grabbed a deadhead and dragged himself up, sucking in air. Shading his eyes with one hand, he studied his surroundings. Muskeg as far as he could see. Wait! Further off among the weeds and deadheads, he could see logs resting against each other, stretching into the distance. Corduroy Road, 
into the water again. He struck out in the direction of the logs. Finally, he reached them and with his last ounce of strength pulled himself up. He lay flat, gulping great breaths of air. When his breathing slowed, he gingerly raised himself onto his hands and knees and looked around. Except for the drone of the insects, all was silent. The logs stretched out into the distance as far as he could see. Scrambling to his feet, he set out. He had no idea where he was going, only the certainty that going forward was his only option. The logs rolled and pushed against one another, making it hard for Jed to keep his balance. He fell, scraping his knees on the rough bark. He swished his t-shirt around in the water, using it to wash off the blood. He was hungry, and he'd lost track of time. How long had he been on the corduroy road? Felt like hours. No way to tell for sure. He tried to remember what Dickhead had told him about survival in the wilderness. Some insects and plants were edible. Fish, if you could catch one. The only fish he'd spotted were pike, too bony for good eating, and raw. He wasn't hungry enough for that. If Jed ever saw Dickhead again, he'd ask him how to catch a fish. He trudged on, keeping a wary eye around him. Shaking his head, he realized how often he'd thought of Dickhead in the past several hours. He might be an asshole. Jed wasn't ready to completely let him off the hook, but he had to admit his stepfather had taught him some important stuff. Stuff that had come in useful. A hum. Jed stopped, crouched, and listened. Cars. There must be a road nearby. His heart leapt until he remembered Boris. If he'd been unable to find Jed in the muskeg, he might wait for him by the road. He slowed his pace and inched forward. Now he could see the last of the logs. Solid ground ahead. A road with cars. Warily, he crept forward. He sensed the shot before he actually heard it and instinctively threw himself to the ground. The bullet whined over his head and buried itself in a nearby spruce. Boris had spotted him. He ducked behind a large rock. On his right, the glint of metal, a culvert under the road. Another gunshot. The bullet hit a sapling, sending splinters flying in all directions. No time to lose. Jed crawled on his belly into the culvert. He inched forward through the debris until, with a sob, he emerged on the other side of the road and into bush. He edged forward, keeping to shadows and trees. The sun was sinking and it was decidedly cooler. Another night in the open. Now he really was hungry. He forced himself to keep moving. Just ahead, fruit clinging to a few straggly bushes. He scrambled toward them and filled his hands with wild raspberries, wolfing them down until he'd stripped the canes. Not so hungry now, but thirsty. He trudged on. The sun sank lower, a clearing ahead with buildings. Keeping to the trees, he circled around. The clearing was overrun with weeds and the buildings were dilapidated. Shingles littered the ground. Broken glass, a faded sign, paint cracked and peeling. Lucky Angler Lodge, a deserted fishing camp. He listened. Nothing except the wind and the trees. There had to be a lake nearby. Steal a boat? Too risky. 
If Boris were looking for him, he'd be exposed. He ran forward, thrust his hand inside the broken window at the side of the door, and unlocked it. Inside, he leaned against the wall, inhaling dust and musty air. A stone fireplace containing a few partly burned logs. Mice had nested in the sofas and chairs. Jed listened intently. The building was deserted. Quickly, he explored the ground floor, grabbing a wool blanket and a sheet from a supply closet. The kitchen had nothing. Wait! In a dusty corner, there was an empty poly bottle. He tried the taps. Water gurgled then splashed into the sink. He left the tap on until the water ran clear, rinsed the bottle, filled it, gulped long draughts, wiped his mouth, and then filled the bottle again. Rifled through drawers, he stuffed a knife into the pocket of his jeans. A prize find, a half-empty box of wooden matches. He struck one, a whiff of sulfur, and it flared. Good. Stay in the lodge overnight? No, he'd be safer in the bush. He stashed the matches with the knife and left the lodge, closing the door behind him, and disappeared into the woods. The sun had nearly set. He had to work quickly, ignore the mosquitoes. He found what he was looking for, two trees close together. He collected branches and pine boughs. With the knife, he ripped the sheet into ropes, Dickhead's voice reminding him how to build a lean-to. He wove the branches together, securing them with the strips of sheet, and then covered them with pine boughs. Exhausted, Jed rolled himself in the blanket and slept in his rough shelter. The first faint fingers of light creeping through the pine needles awakened him. He crouched, looking and listening, then quickly dismantled the lean-to, scattering the branches and boughs. He rolled up his blanket, stuffing the strips of sheet into it, and stashed it behind a rock. He hadn't eaten anything since the raspberries, and he was hungry. What had Dickhead said? Rabbit stick. Bring down a small animal. Primitive and crude, but effective if you knew how to throw it. And Jed knew how to throw one. Dickhead had made sure of that. He searched until he found what he was looking for. A sturdy branch, slightly curved, a bit like a boomerang. He sat down on a rock and trimmed the branch with the kitchen knife. Slow and tedious, the knife wasn't made for this. At last it was ready. He found a clearing and made a few practice throws. A murder of crows, cawing loudly and rising altogether from the trees ahead, alerted him. A squirrel or a rabbit wouldn't have spooked the birds. It had to be something bigger. Carrying the rabbit stick over his right shoulder the way he'd been taught, he crept toward his campsite. Boris. He'd found the blankets. Jed cursed himself for leaving them. Jed watched from behind the trees. Boris's shoulder holster with his gun was clearly visible. Boris looked around and, satisfied that he was alone, pulled a water bottle from his utility belt. One hand to hold the bottle, one to twist the cap. No hand free to reach for his gun. Now! Now! Jed stepped forward hurled the rabbit stick so that it spun like a frisbee, swift and silent. Boris looked up at the last minute, dropped the water bottle, and reached for his gun. Too late. The rabbit stick struck him in the right arm. The bone shattered from the impact. 
The gun flew through the air, landing almost at Jed's feet. Boris fell to the ground, screaming. No time to waste. Jed grabbed the gun, stuck it into the waistband of his jeans, then emptied the Russian's pockets, money, car keys, and cell phone. Jed ran. He ran until he thought he'd vomit from sheer exhaustion and found himself on the stony shore of the lake. The shoreline led directly back to the camp, something shiny that wasn't there last night. Jed crawled on his hands and knees and took cover behind the trees. The door to the lodge was open, and in the clearing stood the black car, Boris's car. He jogged down to the water's edge and threw the keys as far as he could. He worked his way back in the direction he'd come the night before. When he reached the road, he stood for a moment, breathing deeply and looking around him. Then he took Boris's cell phone from his pocket. As soon as it registered a faint signal, he dialed a number from memory. Dad, I want to come home, and heard Dickhead say, Tell me where you are, son. I'll come and get you. The End And that has been Runaway by Joan O'Callaghan. Are you a published author? Would you like to be profiled on Dead to Rights, the podcast? We still have a couple of slots open for 2018 and will soon be looking to fill 2019 weekly features. We'd love to hear from you at Publishing at rogers.com. And please be sure to say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. Do you have a question for any of our featured authors regarding the book business? Do you have a theme or a topic you'd like us to address? We love hearing from readers and writers alike. You can touch base with us at deadtorights.ca, on Facebook, under Dead to Rights, or on Twitter at Dead to Rights Pod. Of course, you can always find me, Donna Carrick, on Facebook, under my personal page, or as Carrick Publishing. We're also tweetable at Donna underscore Carrick, and at Alex underscore Carrick, or at Carrick Pub. If you have questions related to the book industry for any of our authors, don't hesitate to reach out through our online forums. Be sure to join us next week, when we'll be speaking with true crime author Nate Henley about his recent book, The Boy on the Bicycle, which has been widely acclaimed and reviewed, and we reviewed it here on Dead to Rights on August 25th. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by our son Ted Carrick, as is all of our original story scoring music. You can hear Ted's work on YouTube at Ted Carrick Music or tweet with him at Ted Carrick. Thanks for subscribing to Dead to Rights, the podcast, and we'll see you next week.
And I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free Yet it rides Let it rot